Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Hello and welcome to podcast number seven from the Auditorium with myself, your host, David Bramwell, and my co-host... Mr. David Mountfield. That's your Jeffrey voice, isn't it? It from, is. From Count Arthur Strong. Dave, is, right. uh, Dave is one of the characters in, I've got to say, one of my favourite ever radio comedies, Count Arthur Strong. Bless you, darling. Right, anyway, so we're digressing. We have got a, we've got a very special guest today in that he's a producer of some uh, some excellent work. The Bunny Suicides. The Bunny Suicides books. This yes. is Andy Riley, who uh, his Bunny Suicide books have um, have travelled the globe, haven't they, in, uh, in various formats and uh, with some rather successful merchandise. He's also the co-writer of one of the series of black books, the Dylan, Dylan Moran... Series 3, I'm reliably series, informed. I think it was Series 3, thank you, Memory Man. man. That's all right. <laughs> this is a recording of, of Andy speaking at the Catalyst Club uh, in, in Brighton, and uh, he isn't talking about dead rabbits or, uh, or, or, or Dylan Moran. Uh, he's talking about a private passion of his, which is wild camping. Mm. Wild camping with a difference, and we're about to find out uh, what that difference is with Andy Riley. Here he is. Right, but first of all, we need to talk about wilderness, um, where we look for it, where we expect to find it, and where we might actually really find it. Now, if you're starting off from where we are in the south of England, and you're sort of looking for the great outdoors and a slightly more rugged place than the sort of, you know, the urban sort of environment that you might normally live in, the normal kind of narrative is that you hop in a car or go on a train, and you go generally north or west to these kind of places. Dartmoor, the New Forest, the Brecon Beacons, the Peak District, the lakes. You might add um, Snowdonia or, or the Yorkshire Dales, but you get the idea. The big kind of agreed, slightly wild places that we all understand as being that. But when you get to these places, you often find that what you've got is not really wildness, but quite a managed environment. Sometimes more managed than a city is. You know, they've got keepers and wardens and uh, paths to tell you where to go, an information board to tell you what to be interested in, um, and, uh, and once you've like, seen, gone for your walk and you've gone to a, a castle, you can go to a, a cafe called the Old Smithy and have a cream tea. Well, uh, fuck all that. Uh, the modern campsite, another place that you can't get away from it all quite as easily. Uh, now, these used to resemble roughing it in some way. Um, they don't really now. The, uh, the tap in the corner of the field became a shower block. And they've got Wi-Fi. And worst of all, there's actual indoor spaces at most uh, organised campsites now with recreation rooms with a roof on and walls. And I think once you've got structures like that at a campsite, you're messing with what should be the whole principle of camping, which is to get outside and stay there. So a few years ago, I got into... Well, many years ago, actually, I got into the, the habit of uh, going off and finding other little places looking on a map and finding other places that I could camp where I wasn't supposed to camp. And uh, years later, I actually discovered that this has a name, and it's called Wild Camping. You go in quite late, and you set up camp, and then you leave fairly early in the morning. And if you do it right, no one ever knows that you were there. It's not legal in England and Wales. It involves trespass, normally. So it's a stealthy operation. Your festival tent that's all kind of fluorescent orange and, and grey, you don't take that. A wild camper will have a sort of tarpaulin that's the colour of a rotting log. Another uh, way of keeping the stealth is that wild campers don't reveal where their spots are. 
if you put wild camping into YouTube, you'll find loads of blokes, and it is normally blokes, that will show you their little camp, and they'll explain everything about the knots that they're using and how to eat bark <laughs> and that kind of thing. But they won't tell you where they are because they like to keep these spots for themselves. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to um, show you where some of my spots are because I need to do that for my unfolding argument. What you do is you go on an Ordnance Survey map or Google Earth these days, and you... You look for places where no one in their right mind would go, especially at night, which are unguarded and untended and preferably without a clear line of sight to a farmhouse. So as the years went on and I, and I got into the habit of doing this in like the, the warmer six months of the year, I, I discovered something counterintuitive, which is that the closer that I got to London, which is where I live, the more of these wild campy wildernessy spots that I found. And... I thought about this, and I realised that it's to do with the topography of the landscape, of how we slice it up. This kind of landscape all around the edge of London is just slashed to pieces by motorways and dual carriageways and the kind of things that you can't easily walk across. And what this does to the landscape is it, it creates little islands and, and peninsulas of land which used to be on the way to somewhere, but now aren't. They're not a shortcut. And so as I got closer and closer to the road network for the wild camping, I thought, well, maybe I could go one step further and camp inside the road network. And, and then I was put in mind of a, of a comic, or an, an annual really, that I had when I was eight years old in 1978, the Monster Fun Annual, one of many now defunct British humour comics, only the Beano remains, the last one standing. And in, in this Monster Fun, it had a sort of a longer eight-page strip in it, uh, which was called Traffic Island. It starts in this very arresting way. Today we tell a tale of a place where few men have dared set foot. Yet it could be in your town, in your district, maybe even at the end of your street. And in this uh, story, there is a mayor and his hat blows off in the wind. And there's a boy who works in the mayor's office. Inexplicably, they have child labour in this town. And he volunteers to get this hat back. And where the hat's gone is the famous traffic island. And no one's been able to get to it for years because they can't get through the cars. So the boy hand glides onto the island and he has adventures there. Uh, amongst one of the, the characters he meets is this fellow called Ben Goon, who has been living there since the roundabout was built as a castaway. And there's a panel in this which I always remembered like for decades until I bought this, this book on eBay again. And it, it's just stayed with me, which is where we see Ben Goon's house, which he built himself out of old lemonade cans and chewing gum that people threw from cars. <laughs> this really appealed to my childhood imagination. This was, like, this, this was making your own world like some kind of Robinson Crusoe, but you didn't need a boat to get there. So when I realised that I might be able to start looking at roundabouts and junctions to camp, I thought, I know exactly the place to go. Because I'd actually had a look at it very briefly a couple of years before. And it was the High Bush Traffic Island. It's just off the A10 near Beaconsfield, and it's an absolute monster. It's 110 metres from one side to the other. That's nearly a hectare of land. It was put in about 40 years ago, planted with silver birch, and just left. So what this is is an actual piece of honest-to-good wilderness, right in the Chilterns. Some of the most expensive property in Britain is all around here. Here is a piece of actual, genuine, untended land. Nobody goes there. So I thought, that's, that's the place to go. I set up camp, and uh, I discovered that just how few people go there, because I actually made a mental note of the litter that I found on my previous visit two years before. And there was exactly two pieces of litter inside the interior of the island. A Ginster's wrapper 
and uh, Simpsons yogurt pot, which you know, could have been there for, like, from the early 90s. So I knew that pretty much no one had been there in the last two years. Uh, I set up camp, and then I, when I settled in for the evening, I discovered that uh, it could be a very beautiful place, uh, a traffic island, and there's a curious psychological effect when you walk onto a roundabout, particularly a, a wooded one, where you don't feel like kind of tense, or at least I don't. The tension actually just lifts off you straight away because you've stepped into this sort of other little world that no one goes in. There's traffic noise, sure, but all the cars are circling around you, going wherever, hither and thither, and you're in this sort of calm centre point. Where, where you don't have to do anything and you've just got this little kingdom and it's all yours. It's the most wonderfully relaxing feeling. And although no one quite believes me on this, the sound of the cars rotating around you does sound just a little bit like waves on a beach. But that's, that's, that's I'm getting a little bit poetic now, but, it's, but for me, that's kind of real. So also once I settled in, I thought, well, if I was going to make a go of it, like Ben Goon, how would I survive on this, on this island? So um, I'm not bushcraft expert, but I did find uh, several species. Blackberries, easy. We all know blackberries, okay? That's like the one piece of hunter-gathering thing that we can all do after the apocalypse. Yeah, but there's, there's the blackberry bushes are going to be hammered, you know, when, when, when the Russians turn the gas off. Here's my post-apocalyptic tip for you, the hawthorn berry. It's full of vitamin C. Hawthorn is all over the place. They look poisonous. But actually, it's perfectly fine. It's got quite a nice flavour and very nourishing. That's a tip for you. Going down the edibility scale, nettles. If you cut the top couple of inches off nettles, clean them and fry them with a little bit of uh, pepper and salt, they're, they're like the nicest crisps that you ever had. Uh, and then going further down, um, bracken. Apparently, if you dig up the roots, you can roast them and they taste like shit. <laughs> but you'll survive. If you went on berry season and you, were, and you took all the calories on pie bush, you could probably feed someone for about three days, which it might not sound very much, but that's, that's pretty good for a traffic island. And then uh, my friend Tim came along. We've got a campfire in the middle of a junction and nobody knew because the smoke dissipated by the time it got to the top of the trees. That felt really good to do our sausages on that actually late at night. So, uh, and after Pie Bush, I, I got into the habit of this. In the last couple of years, I've, I've gone on, on quite a lot of roundabout camping trips. Another good one, the Amwell Roundabout in Hertfordshire. No need to take any kind of cushioning on the Amwell Roundabout because there's so much ivy on the forest floor. It's just like a big spongy pillow. And also in Amwell, I found evidence of some people having been there before and having a bit of fun there. I found um, a kettle. An actual kettle and the surefire sign of human activity, the disposable barbecue. Someone's actually had a little bit of a trip to Amwell, so it's not just me. Uh, and in fact, when I started researching this talk, uh, I discovered that people camping on roundabouts is actually a persistent local news story. It keeps cropping up all over the place. And one particularly good time was, well, a bad time for someone, but in 2009, the Pentagon roundabout is very close to the middle of Derby. There's a woman called Sharon Simpson, and her and her partner found themselves homeless in the spring. And uh, not really knowing where else to go, they just took a tent out to the, uh, the middle of this traffic island, and they, and they stayed there. Soon they started fishing things out of skips. They found uh, a gazebo, uh, which is nice in the summer. They found some sun loungers. They found a car battery. They got a friend to recharge it, and uh, with that they, they could power a DVD player, TV, and a freeview box. And they lived there actually quite comfortably for about six months, except for the terrifying dashes across four lanes of traffic. 
they said that was a bit dodgy, but once you're on there, it was fine. They even had some friends come to stay once, you know. And so they weren't staying on this in a kind of a knobby, psychogeographical way like me. They were doing it because there's nowhere else for them to go. And the main reason that they left, actually, was because the leaves fell off the trees. The council could see them and felt they had to do something about it. And the council always... They, the, people can go unnoticed for months on traffic islands, and it's happened quite a lot. And when, when it kind of becomes known locally, uh, councils feel like they have to... This space that they've done fuck all with, and uh, someone else has found a use for, they feel like they've got to get control of it back. You know, they're like the dog in the manger. You know, we, we can't use it, but you can't use it either. Which I find for a piece of like unenclosed land, this is, this is like the land that escaped to the Enclosures Act of the 18th century, I, I, found, I find that a little bit annoying. <laughs> um, another more famous example, possibly, uh, the Romanians, uh, who, uh, who often camp, end up camping on the Marble Arch roundabout, quite near the middle of London. At Westminster Council are always trying to move them on, and they always come back. What I'd like you to do, not necessarily camp on traffic islands, because they're all mine, don't go to Piebush, it's mine, okay? I've, I've claimed that. Um, but you can have a look around you and just look for the places around you, not even necessarily woods or anything like that, but just the places where people don't quite go, the places off to the side, little triangles of land and space of any size. Step into them, spend a bit of time in them, watch what everyone else is doing, and you might sort of find that your, your perception of the world slightly shifts. You've just sort of moved into another little universe, and when you come out, you can look at the world afresh. And there's a lot of places like this around once you start looking. And if I may paraphrase or quote the Monster Fun Annual once again, it could be in your town, it could be in your district, it could even be at the end of your street. Thank you. Andy Riley there. That's, uh, that's a lovely story. I, I don't know, Dave, if you've ever done any unusual camping or well, camping I've, strange I've, places? I, I've done purely wild camping, I have. Uh, uh, and that was up in the uh, in the Brown Mountains uh, in, in Scotland, where even uh, the fish hadn't seen anyone for years, and there's whole uh, towns that were just left from the clearances as I've they were. I've never heard of the Brown Mountains. It sounds like a euphemism, but it where, does, whereabouts is it? Well, it's it's sort of the, the West Highland Way. It's along the West Highland Way, along a lot of the locks and everything. And there's, and there's absolutely nothing there within 50 miles. And, and we used to fish by just making a bent pin and putting it in a stream and the, and the brown trout would just jump up and, and put themselves on it because they'd not seen anyone. So that's pretty wild. But in terms of uh, what he's talking about, as a Cub Scout, I went on a camp on some disused land owned by the co-op in Leicestershire and we discovered a, 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 an opening in the ground under a bush and we went into it and we realised we were in a disused RAF uh, command bunker because the whole area uh, was used by the RF in the war, um, and things were largely left untouched. There were even sort of old books on the table and old filing cabinets. And the only area that had been disturbed was in one corner was a large and luxurious pile of pornography. That was, it was, uh, which you've got by, here on the table, yeah, which I've brought with me. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was that was uh, you know uh, a treasure trove beyond beyond rubies for a twelve-year-old boy. I bet it, I bet it was. Yeah. I mean, the curious thing, you know, for those for, for listeners who aren't British, and uh, hello to both of you. We have a difficulty in England, haven't we? It, it's not a country that it's easy to do wild camping in because I think they say purchasing pornography. But yes, no, it isn't. No, it is, it, it isn't an easy uh, thing because so much of Britain has been domesticated over thousands of years, definitely. And, and I was trying to think of uh, of times when I've done this, and they've been few and far between. But I remember once in the New Forest, England, where I was 
I decided to go camping one one weekend with uh, with with my girlfriend, and we you know we we drove into this campsite and it just in our hearts sank. It was just so depressing. We thought, look, we'll just just go park in the middle of the wood and go walk and keep walking until we find a space and we'll pitch our tent and it'll be fine. Uh, so we did that and we walked. I think probably a good half a mile from from the layby that we parked in into deep into the woods, right. pitched up. Um, and uh, and you know as the sun was setting, thinking this is beautiful. We you know we're lost. We're properly in the wild here. You know no one's ever going to find us. And then we start to hear these voices, and uh, twelve men right, <laughs> turn up and they camp about a hundred meters away from us. Oh, that's... And they're on a stag weekend. Oh God. <laughs> And they spend, you know, they they light a massive fire, which is a big no-no in the New Forest, and you know, the middle of summer. They yeah, light like a massive that. fire, um, and they just, you know, they're just singing and yelling and uh, and uh, and spoiling the atmosphere for us, you yeah. know, trying to have a romantic time and uh, you know, quite shag. And uh, and of course, they attracted the forest rangers because of the fire, and uh, and they, they, you know, they turned up and they thought we were with them, which we weren't. You know, we we were the trying to be the sensible middle class couple who were just, you know, we're the other one on the slow, yeah. <laughs> We're, um, we're the good trespassers. So we all got we all got we all got kicked out. So that was um, oh, that well, was... that's what happens, I mean, and that's why I think in Britain the 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 sort of crass middle class dream is to move to the country and and, and experience something wild. Um, but of course, there is almost no wild. To uh, one time, the, the one bit that is relatively wild. I think is is Dartmoor. Dartmoor is a genuine wilderness, and one time Macclesfield. Well, that's a different kind of wilderness. Yeah. Uh, but one time we we came across a, a a man from New York sat on a tour crying, um, and my dad said to him, uh, walking with the family, "What's up? What's the matter?" And he just said, "Just look at it. I don't want to go back to New York. Don't make me go back to New York." And that was it, really. Oh, it's a lovely we story. We gave him a cuddle and had a laugh, and that was it. Yeah. Just sent him off back to New York. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got a. Letter here from who's this from? This is from I can't read the writer. Yes, I can. It's Martin. F- it's Martin Fish again, isn't it? We've got Martin Fish. Oh, oh I've got. Um, Sorry, this is our producer has just come in, Lance. I just thought that. Um, um, do you remember? I could have put some clothes on, Lance. Yeah. <laughs> so I know it's radio, but for heaven's sakes. Do you remember episode one? Does anyone ref- uh, the first episode we dropped? I don't. No, oh, me neither. Drop- yeah, we drop episodes. Do you remember right. that? And What's do you remember at uh, the back end of that? Take you back. It was about uh, martinis, wasn't it? Oh, yes, yes, of course. A lot of years ago. Going back to what, 94 yeah. something here? Yeah, two, it two, was about four months ago. Four months ago, yeah. And yeah. you said at the end, you said, what would you like to have a drink? Um, kind of what would be a suitable thing to make a drink out of? Uh, and uh, one of you said rhubarb, didn't you? When you said rhubarb, I did. I was joking, but but I did say. And I, um, I think I can what see. What I did was uh, you said rhubarb gin, um, and I prepared. Oh my god! Oh, good some Lord. rhubarb gin. Now it's kind of still in the bottle. It's. Um, have you tasted this? You look it looks. It does it, look it, like a sort of sample jar that you would have in the. Uh, what's that museum uh, where you have freaks in in uh, in, in London? Jars the, in London. Um, the Hunterian well, Museum. Hunterian it does look like. It does look like um, uh, strange sea creatures from the Hunterian, or or a jar of pickled eggs that have gone weird, <laughs> gone bad. <Yeah. laughs> yes. Oh, you're going to make us drink this, aren't you? I'm looking yeah, forward to it. It's been around for about four, three months now. I like the wrapping that it came in. I thought mm. you were bringing us fish and chips. Well, no, I did the wrapping because it's like proper moonshine. I really didn't want it to spill inside my bag. Actually, that smells rather nice. It's funny what you're saying about the wilderness and that talk. Well, it smells a rhubarb. Don't you think there's a sense in which, in a very mediated society, that an mediated world that people are kind of striving and looking for wilderness that can kind of and and the wild growing through cracks and the, those little moments. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, cheers <laughs> for the beers. Yeah. Thanks. Back to the gym, um, I suppose. Anyway, yeah, this is just done um, by. 
steeping rhubarb in gin for six weeks. Do you know what? It's, it's a winner. Bloody nice. It's a winner. I we like have a little it. bit of simple syrup in it. I was going to say, is there any sugar in it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's oh, bringing the tone down. Yes, that is delicious. Actually, oh. I'm wondering if you're getting any of this, the smell of that on radio, but it, it does smell nice. It? As well. That's quite nice. Mm. Yeah. It's got a. It, it, it is. Um, it's tart. The it botanical. Tart. It is. The botanicals cut through that, and um, you do get a good old hit of rhubarb, which for me is a winner. Yeah, I always like it. Well, yeah. I did one with a bit of ginger in it, but then I overdid the ginger. And uh, do you want another little mm. top? Do you know there? what that would be nice with? Oh, a little bit of it... cream. Maybe make a sort of cream liqueur. Oh, Wouldn't that be smashing? With the ginger. Or, or this. Just this. 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 It's interesting when you when you infuse things, they balance. So basically, if you like. The ginger took over. I had to take the ginger out, but then it will rebalance as well. If you leave ingredients in, they'll kind of... It's like they compete until they settle after right. six weeks. And I thought I'd um, leave you with that. Thank you very much. Was, and you're, uh, you're right, to be fair, Lance. You're right. Those wild moments. I just had one before recording this, uh, this segment. I went out for a little cigarette outside our studios, and there's a little bin there. And I was just putting my cigarette out on the top of the bin before throwing it in. The bin started rustling. And uh, I was genuinely alarmed, thinking there's something in the bin. A wolf? Uh, it was a wolf. No, it wasn't. It was a little bird. Just hopped out and hopped away. It obviously been foraging in there. For uh, cigarette ends? For cigarette ends, pornography, <laughs> whatever birds look for. And it, and it popped out. Oh, and what did it say to you? Fuck off! <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I always assume that's what birds say. Yeah, mate. That's what they are saying. I understand that's, that's mm. the case. Um, anything else? What else would you th- do you think shouldn't be made into an alcoholic drink for three months' time? Shouldn't be made. Is it? Are we, are we setting up a challenge? Well, here? basically, yeah. yeah. I can. I can. Oreos. Any. <laughs> oh, Oreos. Spaghetti bolognese. Oh! Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tripe. Cheese one. Oh, jeez. No, come on. It's got to be something that's. Got to be something that we actually want to do rather than oh, just okay. pour away. Okay. 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 Something that I don't think will work. Oreo. Uh, um, cashew nut. Yes, a nut. A nut. A nut. Crushed possible? up, crushed nut. Haz- Hazelnuts. Can possible. you do it? It's exactly. Let's experiment. Let's it's see crazy what happens. talk. Yeah. Let's do a crushed nut. Uh, okay. Vodka. Some form of crushed nut vodka. Yeah. Let's go weird. Let's go nuts. Nuts. Okay. I'm off now. <laughs> so back to the control room. Thanks I for the gym. So. Yeah, Thank you very much. Show, by the way. Oh, <laughs> love the show. Okay. You know what? I, I I came across a book a, a while ago, which was uh, it was a book of all the all of the food and veg that can be grown in the UK. Yeah. And it talked about you know the best uh, the best kind of soil and the best best sort of settings for, for these for these uh, different foods, hmm. and it also said which of these plants were native to the UK, and yeah. I was horrified. Well, how few? At how few? Yeah. Fruit and uh, you know what a small number of fruit and veg actually is native to the UK, and it seems that if you go back far enough, the Nothing. only stuff that we ate was rhubarb and turnips, and that was all we had in this country. It was sour and it was bitter, and that's what which, made us great. Which which explains the British <laughs> temperament. Oh, well, it explains the British <laughs> Empire, doesn't it? Just the desperation <laughs> yeah. to eat something other than turnips. Yeah. 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 I can imagine when you know when sugar was brought to this country. And you hear stories about in the um, I can't remember exactly which 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 you know which part of our history. Let's say, certainly within the last ten thousand years, there was a period where um, people were making uh, uh, they make their dinner plates out of sugar, and so you would eat your dinner and sounds then you would good. eat your plate. That sounds really good. Mm. I want one of those. Also, do you know how much uh, pineapples cost when they first came over? Yes. How much? In modern money, the modern equivalent. I lied. I don't. 
about £30,000 per pineapple. That's why in the 18th century, when you get the, a grand house, they're always decorated with pineapples, aren't they? It's because pineapples were incredibly hard to get. They're, they were grown in hot houses in Britain in, by, uh, by sort of gentlemen botanicists, and it was incredibly hard to do. So each fruit, because they had to travel too far and they, they spoiled on the journey. Um, and so each each individual pineapple was a thick more than gold. So if you had a, if you had a time machine now, you could you'd clean be, up. You quids with in. pineapples. You would be quids in. But you, you could just go and play some bets. It's a lot easier that way. But but you're right. Uh, you've got to be creative about it. No, pineapples. I'd, I'd, I'd rather do the pineapple thing. Okay. Um, do you know which food substance is the most valuable product on the planet per ton? Uh, more more than any anything else. More than anything else on the planet. Uh, I'm going to have a guess. At uh, saffron, it is saffron. Yes, it is saffron. Yes, I win. There of course, go. you know that your memory man Mountfield. Exactly. Which leads us on to our competition this this uh, broadcast. Which is is to name the food stuff that you would most like to see put on the uh, UNESCO protected uh, origin of region uh, list, like Milton Mowbray pork pies have been put on recently. Uh, pasties have been put on recently. Um, we're campaigning for Tunnock's tea cakes ourselves, uh, but there's 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 something that that maybe you know like a, a pot noodle, some some something that you know you wouldn't necessarily protect by region, but that you think should be. Well, I, I guess it, they're, they're they're extinct now, but I would have said uh, Texan bars. Texan bars, Texan yes, bars. or or, or chip butties in Bolton, something like that, you know. Okay, Sorry okay. So if you uh, yeah, please do please do write in and our address. We're, we're we're off we're off message here, really off the off the. <laughs> Off the broadcast, aren't we? Um, uh, in terms of the competition, maybe we should do one related to wild spaces in urban. No, fuck it. No, yeah. no, no. We just, we just, Lance just brought the gin in, and I think this yeah, is, this enough. is, this is fine for. I mean, yeah. and also by saying that, Dave, in some way, you're insinuating that we haven't thought through what, yeah. the, what the competition would be the, before actually starting this podcast, which obviously isn't the case. <laughs> you're so right. You're right. that what would a, be crazy. That would be crazy. That would be crazy. <laughs> so anyway, so the competition, as agreed weeks ago, weeks ago by a committee. It, what was it? It was to do what? Something <laughs> about something about food. Uh, basically, being protected. choose your favourite food that hasn't been protected okay. by regional basis and our address as always is dr brownwell and mr mountfield the auditorium podcast england England. and that will get to us that will reach us the auditorium is presented by dr david bramwell and mr david mountfield the producers are lance dan and andrew mailing you can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about at one of our venues around the UK, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the Auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes.